brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ. A while ago, I read the book, Band of Brothers, that's written by Stephen Ambrose. And in this book, the author tells the story about Easy Company, which is a parachute infantry regiment in the U.S. Army during World War II. It's a story about ordinary men, men who came from all sorts of backgrounds, uh, different jobs, and together became in that company World War II's most extraordinary soldiers. They played major roles in capturing strategic sites in Germany and Holland and France. Now, Ambrose wrote this book because he was intrigued with the bond which developed amongst the members of Easy Company and how they were even willing, if necessary, to die for each other. Coming from various backgrounds, ordinary lives, coming to a point where they were so devoted to one another, so bonded to one another, that they would die for each other. And that willingness, that devotion, that bond, helped them not only to survive, but to become the very best fighters. The company to whom and to which the generals gave the toughest assignments. Now, brothers and sisters, this band of brothers in World War II came to mind when considering Acts 1, verses 12 to 14. The time that we are reading of here in Acts 1 is the time immediately after the ascension of Jesus Christ that's described in verses 1 through 11, when Jesus ascended into heaven before their eyes, where the angel, angels encouraged them not to fear, but to trust that this was a, a step in the right direction. This was a, a blessing for the church uh, this was the growth of the church when Christ ascended into heaven. And it was the time before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It's the time when the disciples are to be waiting in Jerusalem when Christian believers were found together. Yes, they were a band of brothers and sisters, that's what we're reading in our text. They are a, a band of believers, a band of followers of Jesus Christ, helping each other in spiritual war. So this morning we'll hear God's word proclaimed under this theme. This is how we summarize the message. Christ's followers are banded together in unity. That's how we title this sermon. Christ's followers are banded together in unity. We'll see two things. They're banded together in Christ, and they're banded together in worship. <clears throat> so we'll first consider how they are banded together in Christ. Let's look at our Bibles to Luke 1. Oh, sorry, sorry, to Acts 1. I, I mentioned the verses 1 through 11 describe the ascension of Jesus Christ. 
So that time following immediately after his resurrection, a few days after, or 40 days after, I should say. And we read there in verse 4 these words. And while staying with them, that's Jesus staying with his disciples, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. Do not leave Jerusalem. Luke 24, which is another passage that describes the ascension, the very last part of that chapter, uh, has Jesus, um, or, or, or has the, the, the disciples we read there, staying in the city. So, obeying the Lord Jesus Christ, obeying this instruction, waiting in Jerusalem after the ascension until the coming of the Holy Spirit. There's a span of 10 days after the ascension to Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit. While they are together in those 10 days, they are meeting daily, for continued prayer as they are preparing for their task and awaiting Christ's promise. And that gathering together is beautiful. It's something precious, beloved. It's exciting, yet sober. Uh, it's following some very dramatic events of the past month and a half. These are the followers of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ sticking together in the very heart of hostile territory. Well, let's look at who were all there in this gathering. That's what is explained in our text. We have Peter, John, and James, first of all. And they're mentioned first, because they are the three who had a, a special access to the Lord Jesus later in his ministry. Uh, they, uh, with that, that special access, also were given leadership roles amongst the disciples. Then there's mentioned Andrew and Philip, Thomas and Bartholomew, Matthew, and then James. So it says son of Alphaeus there because to distinguish from the other James. We have Simon and it says the Zealot, probably in order to distinguish from Peter who is Simon Peter. And Judas, it says son of James. And that's a different Judas than Judas Iscariot who was no longer with them. So that, those are the disciples. And then we see in addition to them, there are the women, those who had attended Jesus during his ministry. You have Mary, the mother of Jesus, and you have the brothers of Jesus. So quite the group. You have... The sons that are born to Joseph and Mary after Jesus' birth, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And from the Gospels, we know that those brothers of Jesus refused to believe in him. Even in the last six months of his public ministry, they were hostile to Jesus. They were obstacles to his work. But now we can see something of what Christ's work has accomplished, what the Spirit has done. 
already, even before Pentecost. For after Jesus' resurrection, his brothers believe in him. They are one for Jesus by Jesus himself. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, at some point during those 40 days before his ascension, Jesus, we read, privately appeared to James to prove to him the reality of his resurrection. And as a result, James put his faith in Jesus. Later, this same James, the brother of Jesus, became the head of Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, Acts 15, and wrote a letter by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit included in Scripture to dispersed Christians. We have the book of James in our Bibles. That's attributed to the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. And Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, um, records in his history that this same James was stoned to death for his faith. So it's a remarkable, a remarkable thing, brothers and sisters, this group together, Jesus' brothers, uh, some of the women. Uh, included among those women is likely a woman who uh, was a prostitute at one time, another who had seven demons that had been expelled, and then you have the disciples. Verse 15, so following our text, we read that this group, this company of believers, of persons, has grown to about 120. So that may not have been like that at first, but at some point, that was the number of the gathering. And you can imagine, beloved, with that kind of gathering and with that kind of group of people, with their various backgrounds and various issues, you could say, that there would have been some potential for division amongst this assembly of people. Some of the members of this company might have claimed special recognition, while others might have looked upon them with some measure of doubt. For example, Peter might have thought, I'm one, I was one of that uh, inner group of the disciples to whom Jesus entrusted a, a special a measure of um, information, and even Peter was the spokesman for the disciples. Um, some of the company could have criticized this very Peter uh, and dismissed him uh, due to his recent denial of the Lord Jesus, cowardly denial. On the other hand, Peter might have had a beef with his brother or his fellow disciple John. After all, uh, it was John who brought Peter into the high priest's house, who, who was the one who enabled Peter to come into the courtyard. And, and that's where Peter got into all sorts of trouble and temptation. So, so maybe Peter is kind of thinking, why did you do that, John? It's your fault that I fell into sin. 
Maybe John would turn around and say, who was at the cross last when Jesus died and who stood faithfully there to the end? And, and wasn't it me that Jesus on the cross had, had appointed to care for his mother, even over and above his, her own sons? So lots of potential you can imagine. And, and as I mentioned also, a number of that company had fallen into grievous sins. And so there was a reputation there. But that's not what we read in our text. We don't read about division, beloved. In fact, there is no arguing at all recorded among, uh, even about who was the greatest amongst them. You know, the disciples did that before. They're, they're not doing it now. No, this unusual group of persons from such different backgrounds, I mentioned some of the, the things. Uh, we also have uh, a former tax collector, a publican, a, a zealot. All of these, we read, are a company. Verse 15, they are gathered together. They are a band of believers. They are united together. It says in our text, they were together with one accord. And that word speaks about the heart. Cord is the, the word for heart. They are of one heart and mind. And that's how the New American Standard puts it. They were of one mind this band of believers. So, how is that possible? We all know how division can quickly arise in the midst of a congregation. It happens everywhere. But how is it possible that they can overcome this division and be of one accord, of one mind, united together? Beloved, the only thing that can bind all of these different people together permanently is by way of the command and the Word and the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Time and time again, these Christians, these weak Christians, have to fall on their knees and call upon the Lord constantly, unceasingly imploring Him to fulfill the promise of the Father. In other words, the hallmark of a Christian church, that which marks the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, of being united in Christ, is that it enjoys and celebrates forgiveness and reconciliation with God and with one another. You see, nothing expresses more the power of the Lord Jesus Christ than when His church, His body, lives in unity and reconciliation. When it is willing and seeking to forgive as God in Christ forgives. And this we have to remember constantly. 
Our unity in faith, beloved, our fellowship as believers is rooted in Christ. We must keep striving to live according to this truth and principle so that whenever we experience disunity or struggle in ourselves to forgive or to be reconciled to others, especially to those who have hurt us, we must remember Christ's intended fruit of his death and resurrection. That was why Jesus Christ came to this earth, by the way. That we might be reconciled to God and to one another. And therefore, the church must manifest that truth, that confession of Christ's incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension, and outpouring of the Holy Spirit and return. It's a church united in love and fellowship, living together in harmony and unity. Such as been expressed in the Psalms that we sang, 122 and 133, and also read 122. We are delighted, like the psalmist, having made that long journey, having entered into the gates of Jerusalem, uh, probably later in the evening, and so had gone to sleep uh, in a hotel or, or a resting place, and then in the morning that his friend said, let's go, let's now go to the house of the Lord. With that delight, we seek to be united in love and fellowship. And we see from our text that it begins and it is maintained primarily in public worship and prayer. So that brings us to our second point, that those banded in Christ, banded together in unity, are also banded together in worship. In Luke 24, I mentioned that that was another place that describes the ascension of Jesus Christ. We read in verse 53, the last verse, these words. But I'll first read starting at verse 50. He led them out, that's Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And then we read verse 52, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And then verse 53, we read, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. They were continually in the temple, blessing God. And what we want to note, brothers and sisters, is the fact that the evidence of their unity described in our text, their unity in Christ, is clearly demonstrated in and strengthened by their corporate worship. That's what our text is. God's people together in worship. And that biblical worship consists of two main components that reflect the covenant dialogue between God and reconciled mankind. And that is this. First of all, God speaks to us through His Word and Spirit. 
And then we speak to God through song, prayer, verbal confession, and commitment. Those are the two main components of worship, which is a conversation with God as God's people. God speaks to us. We speak to God. And our side of that covenant dialogue is described in our text how? All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Prayer. That's how the worship is described here. Beloved, if the Holy Spirit is the divine gift of Jesus Christ that empowers and guides His church, then the corresponding human attitude toward God is prayer. As the church prays, it receives the Spirit. As the church receives the Spirit, it prays. At the outset, the author is emphasizing that the disciples spent their time of waiting for the Spirit in an attitude of continuous, united prayer. And that is a fundamental characteristic of the church of the apostles of the early Christians. We see it also after Pentecost in chapter 2 of Acts. We read in verse 42 about the fellowship of the church, of the believers, that was continuing to grow. It says in verse 41 that added to that on that day of Pentecost to the church were about 3,000 souls. What were those 3,000 souls plus the uh, earlier gathering doing? Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. In chapter 6, you perhaps remember that story in Acts where the apostles were struggling to minister to the people, to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to the people because there were so many needs. The widows were in need of food and they couldn't do both. So, so we read in Acts 6 about the institution of the office of the deacon in the church and, and their task to care for the needs of God's people so that, why? Verse 6, uh, sorry, verse 4 of chapter 6, so that the apostles, it says, could devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And we read also then in the writings of the apostles, we think also of Paul, who is later added to this group as an apostle. He urges the believers in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, to pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. The Christian church is to constantly be worshiping Christ Jesus, their head, being presenting prayers unanimously and expressing a, a perfect unity that becomes the feature of the church. Presumably, the apostles are praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our text, whose coming Jesus promised repeatedly during his ministry. They are joined 
knit together, banded together as brothers and sisters in the Lord in prayer, in worship. And what's so interesting here is the fundamental, visible change in the worship of God's people from the Old Testament. There is no longer what was in the temple, a court for the men, a court for the women, a court for the Gentiles. That is, the converts to the Jewish faith, the Gentiles. That was what that court was for. No, we read in Galatians 3 that in Christ Jesus there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Now some have used this passage in Galatians 3 to say, for example, women should have office in the church. But that's not what this text is saying. There's nothing said of that here. In fact, other passages in Scripture make it very clear that God intends that the church is led by men. The point in Galatians 3 is that we are all equal in Christ before Christ. It doesn't matter what our ethnic background is, what our color of skin is, what our ethical or moral background is, how we grew up. When we believe in Jesus Christ, we share in unity. We are banded together as one. We're all equal. Well, how does this now apply to us today, brothers and sisters? What is, what is this text, this truth of Scripture, of, of how we are one in Christ, apply? Well, for, for first of all, we, and perhaps we are already understanding that, is that Scripture calls us to worship together, constantly, in one accord and with one mind. It means that when we approach the place of worship every Sunday, our desire is, that's the desire we have as we go to church, not to outdo one another or outperform one another by what we did this past week, what we built, what we sowed, what we sold or purchased. No, our desire as we come to church on Sunday is to be comforted together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are very intentional as we come to church on Sunday to have fellowship with one another. You see, church is not something we do so that when it's over, we can go home and we can get on with our lives. It's not that we can just leave the building without greeting our fellow believers. Not even that we only greet a select few as we exercise our cliquish tendencies. No, the church is something we all do together. And we do that very consciously and very intentionally like the apostles, like the women, like the brothers of Jesus are doing in our text. Very intentionally. They are fellowshipping. They are banded together. 
And that means when we come to church, we intentionally greet one another. We make that an important component of our worship. We are willing to greet everyone. When we enter the building, when we enter our pew, we greet one another. We greet those who are sitting behind us. We greet those who are sitting in front of us. We greet those sitting beside us. Also, when we leave the pew after the worship, that we, we don't just file out like, like robots, like, like cows going out of the barn or to the barn later in the day, but we fellowship, we greet one another. We even stay in our pew and chat with our neighbor for a while. And when we stand in the fellowship hall, when we depart from the building, we are intentionally, consciously a band of brothers and sisters. It is an integral part of Christ's body, fellowshipping with one another. So brothers and sisters, what are we saying? What are we saying if after church, or maybe before church, but also after church, if we are avoiding eye contact, maybe not with all, but with some, if we simply leave or go home and show no interest in the lives of others? What are we saying if Sunday is the only day we see one another? That there is there's no fellowship during the week, day after day? What are we saying if there's no interest in our Bible studies or in gathering together to fellowship and rejoice together in special events? If, if we are not gathering together for prayers, prayer meetings? You see, brothers and sisters, God has provided a beautiful day of worship week after week after week. And that is, by God's design, to be a catalyst, a basis for continued fellowship throughout the rest of the week. We live in hostile times, just like the disciples did, and those women and those brothers of Jesus. Hostile times, and we need each other more than ever before. So let's use this gift of fellowship intentionally, worshiping together to strengthen and encourage each other. Worship is not only for God. It is first and primarily for God, but it's also for each other. So let's conclude. I mentioned earlier the book, The Band of Brothers. It's unity. How there is this banding together of certain soldiers, and that unity, that banding, becomes its life source, its comfort and encouragement. Those soldiers are together constantly reminding each other, helping each other, encouraging each other, carrying each other, covering for each other, all keeping focus on the one real goal, to win the fight together. And ultimately, that 
is revealed in how they're willing even to die for each other. That's the only way to keep going in the battle, to win the battle. And that is true also for the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the believers and followers of Christ, the Christian soldiers. We are all united in Christ because we need Him for salvation and life. We are also united with each other because one in Christ, because we are one in Christ and because we so need each other. So let's keep that in focus today, brothers and sisters. Uh, Thinking about our text will help us to overcome and avoid division. It will help each other to serve and worship Jesus Christ, our risen and ascended Lord. Amen.